we believe Secretary Clinton will be coming around the corner any minute. Sorry. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove, 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, out in Hawaii, 88.5 KAKU, the voice of Maui. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, Grateful Dread Public Radio in Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today once again for another thrilling, action-packed episode of the Bradcast. Well, three Democratic candidates for the 2016 presidential nomination debated on Saturday night in New Hampshire on the weekend before Christmas were likely home watching. I suspect most people were out watching Star Wars all weekend. I don't know. But ABC News hosted the debate. It was moderated by David Muir and Martha Raddatz, asking questions of former Senator and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley, and current serving Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Now, the previous Democratic debate, which was also held on a weekend, took place just hours after the Paris terror attacks, uh, which moved the conversation at the time during that debate at the last minute to issues of defense, foreign policy, and the so-called war on terror. That is where this debate largely picked up once again, for good or ill, uh, before moving on to issues of domestic policy, such as middle-class earnings and taxes, health care, education costs, and oddly enough, uh, the conversation about the role of presidential spouses. Um, seems unlikely that would have made it into this debate had there not been a, uh, a female candidate leading the, uh, leading the pack nationally, at least. In any event, viewership for last Tuesday's Republican debate which was held on a weeknight and, of course, featured TV and reality star and GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump, was about 18 million. Viewership for the Democratic debate held on the Saturday before Christmas was reportedly in line with the previous Democratic debate, which was on CBS. That was also held on a weekend. That was about 8.5 million viewers. Now, both of those debates were the top-rated show for their respective uh, nights on the weekend. But uh, it was the weekend. That's where the Democrats uh, apparently wanted uh, their debate to be. At least the DNC did. The only other Democratic debate of the primary cycle was CNN's October 13 debate on a Tuesday night. That netted more than 15 million viewers. 
The three candidates strove to outline differences in their records and their positions over the weekend, though it seemed difficult at times, at least as I saw it, to find much daylight between the candidates on a number of issues. But perhaps my guests today will help me see those differences more clearly, or uh, maybe they won't. I don't know. We'll find out. Joining us to discuss the secret Democratic debate held over the weekend is our old friend David Dayan, financial reporter and contributing columnist at Salon, Fiscal Times, Washington Post, The Intercept, American Prospect, Guardian, uh, and just about everywhere else. Hey, David Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me on the show, Brad. Uh, I appreciate your time, my friend. Uh, and I know you uh, now usually cover financial issues these days, but uh, you spent quite a few years in the news trenches as I recall, covering all manner of a Fire Dog Lake news desk way back when. So you may get to stretch a little bit more in that regard today. We'll find out. Uh, also joining us, another old friend, though making I, what I think is her first, uh, her debut appearance on the broadcast, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, Jackie Schechner, longtime journalist, former underscore former CNN and current TV reporter. <laughs> And the first ever Internet correspondent in cable news. She also worked in D.C. as the National Communications Director for Healthcare for America, now the nation's largest healthcare reform campaign. And she is just back from Paris, where she was working on Al Gore's climate reality project when the Paris terror attacks shocked the world. Jackie Schechner, welcome to the broadcast. Well, that's good to be here. It is my inaugural episode, absolutely. That's what I thought. And by the way, what is the first ever internet correspondent in cable news? What does that mean? Well, back in 2005, CNN hired me to help them figure out how to cover the internet on television. They knew that political blogs were becoming something, but they weren't entirely sure how to cover them. Uh -huh. So they actually brought me from New York to D.C. to help them figure that out. And the same day I got there was the same day I got on the air. <laughs> we talked about the news uh, as it was happening online and the stories that the blogs were covering that mainstream media organizations weren't covering. We were called the blog chicks kind of casually oh, at the time. Right. Uh, and then that morphed. It was on Inside Politics with Judy Woodruff. It morphed into the situation online during Wolf Blitzer's The Situation Room. So I either get credit uh, for or need to apologize for the fact that social media is a large part of news coverage these days because we were the first to ever do it. And, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been where I got to know you. You might have booked me on CNN way back when, uh, uh, pulling in some of my work from bradblog.com, if I recall. I do think that's entirely true. Uh, and I actually say I'm the first because I did have a partner in crime at the time, Abby Tatton, but before Abby joined me on air, I did two days with Howie Kurtz. Oh. Uh, so I beat it, I beat her out by forty eight hours. <laughs> too, too and I don't think uh, I don't think Howie Kurtz is the uh, first ever internet correspondent because technically he was a columnist. Who yeah, uh, too bad you didn't beat him out even further. All right, uh, let's yeah. uh, let's get to uh, Desi Doyen, our producer, of course, as always, is here. Hey, Des. Hey, I'm here. Uh, <laughs> our, it was actually kind of surprising that there were no questions 
once again from the network about climate change. I know. It's supposed to be a a debate focused on foreign policy, partly, and on national security, and not a word about climate change, not a word about energy, for example, like that might be a big deal, or about the Paris Agreement. And I thought that, uh, I want to say it was almost understandable, or we've come to expect it from the Republican debate that was about that, because, you know, Republicans just don't give a damn about it. Uh, but I would have thought it would have come up last night. Anyway, no, me too. I suspect we will be covering uh, that in some detail in our uh, next Green News report. All right. Uh, now that uh, uh, South Carolina uh, senator and full-time boots-on-the-ground Warhawk Senator Lindsey Graham has now dropped out of the Republican race uh, and his bevy of supporter... Otherwise known as uh, John McCain, uh, we'll have to find someone else on the GOP side. I want to do uh, very quickly around the table here for transparency in these cases. Uh, uh, Jackie Sheck, you uh, are are you in the um, in the as it were for any particular candidate? Have you announced your support for any of the uh, candidates, Democratic or Republican, at this point? I have not. I will say I, I have announced my support for a Lindsey Graham-Donald Trump debate matchup, and it looks like Ooh. that's not going to happen because I thought <laughs> that would have been highly entertaining. Yes. Um, but I haven't. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I'm a registered Democrat. Um, I was independent, but I wanted to vote in the primaries last time around. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like both. I mean, I like, uh, put it this way, I like Sanders a lot. Mm-hmm. But whoever wins the nomination is who I'm going to vote for. So that means you so like that's kind of where I stand right now. So that means uh, you like you you like uh, them all a lot, but you're leaning Sanders. Is that fa- fair to say? I'm leaning Sanders because I like the idea that there might be something different going on there. Okay. I think Hillary Clinton could do a really great job, mm-hmm. uh, but I like the idea of what Sanders brings to the table. Fair enough. David Dayen, uh, who, for whom or are you in the bag, as it were? Well, I haven't uh, announced or in, made an endorsement. I, I'm pretty sure nobody's seeking it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if my endorsement moves votes in any one way or another. But you're not so, leaning uh, leaning towards or working for any particular well, uh, you know, candidate I, at this point? I, I certainly have a profile that... that you know, what I've written about that, that matches with some of the things that Bernie Sanders has said, but I have had no problem mm-hmm. uh, either uh, supporting or talking about favorably uh, either or any of the candidates when they uh, interact with things that uh, I care about. Fair enough. Desi Doyen, you got a, got a candidate? I have not endorsed anybody in this debate, uh, in this can- race or anything, actually, okay. so no. And uh, for the record, neither have I, and I probably won't endorse candidates. I, uh, I support voters wherever I can, uh, even when those voters are supporting some pretty terrible candidates. Uh, I, I think uh, candidates have enough support. Voters need more. Okay. The candidates spent some time at the top of the debate on an internecine battle that erupted on Friday concerning a data breach by the Sanders campaign into some of Hillary Clinton's voter data after the DNC's voter database failed allowing the campaigns to view each other's data. Someone from the Sanders campaign, actually reportedly up to four people from the Sanders campaign, looked into some of Hillary Clinton's proprietary data. Now, in the immediate wake of that breach, the DNC cut the Sanders campaign off from their own voter database, uh, which is the lifeblood of any modern campaign. And as the uh, uh, Sanders campaign fired the campaign worker who was said to have overseen that breach, His campaign then filed lawsuit against the DNC themselves, 
to get access to the data again, charging that the DNC had breached their contract with them by cutting them off. And uh, that led the party to quickly restore the voted data, uh, database access to the Sanders campaign once again. Now, the entire incident seems to me, at least like a bit of an embarrassment to the Democratic Party. And frankly, with uh, their chairwoman, Congresswoman uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, going public with this spat instead of bringing it to the campaigns uh, privately, uh, between that and these, uh, these very few Democratic debates scheduled largely on weekends, which is something that the Clinton campaign reportedly did lobby for, uh, does this give credence to the uh, charge by Sanders' Supporters, David Dayen, that uh, Wasserman Schultz and maybe even the DNC itself is in the bag for Hillary Clinton here? Well, potentially, but I think the larger problem is that the DNC has shown themselves to be completely incompetent in this entire political cycle. First of all, even if the, uh, whether or not you believe that the Clinton campaign lobbied to put these debates on on the weekends, uh, the, the idea of hiding your primary campaign so that the other party can get months and months of unfettered access to earn media is 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 asinine. I mean, this is the stupidest thing I've heard uh, that you would that you would do this to deliberately hide uh, your 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 own uh, showcaser ideas and, mm -hmm. and, and policies. Second of all, when you're talking about this data breach. You know, the prized information here is, is not the software, it's the data itself. But the DNC has set up a situation with sole source provider, a monopoly provider called NGP Van, that gives, uh, you, if you want access to the data, you have to use that software source. And because the databases are shared, you get this cross-pollination where you have uh, data from another campaign showing up in your campaign's uh, information. And, and that creates this needless risk. And it's not data security. It's what if uh, the information is improperly updated or it's incorrect or, or the whole system fails, mm -hmm. taking out uh, the ability to run a field campaign for presidential candidates, but every candidate down the line, all the way to dog catcher, uh, and done so that the DNC does this to increase their power uh, that they can dictate data access like they did with the Sanders campaign, or they can dictate uh, who gets to see this information and who doesn't. So, it, it, it creates this needless risk, that, uh, and, and as, as most monopolies do, uh, and, and the, the reason why you would want to do that now, uh, other than complete incompetence. David, they're not, they're not forced. Uh, campaigns aren't forced to use that. In other words, they can take... Functionally, they are, they, because if they want access to that data, yeah. they are forced to use it. I see. That's the and, only place to use it. Uh, uh, it's, it's basically the way in which it's contracted out through the state parties and how candidates get access if they want support from that state party. So on, in a functional sense, they are for that day, and, and, and that's the most prized possession in the DNC's pocket is all this access to the information that has been refined and sharpened over many, many years in different presidential campaigns all the way on down. Jackie Schechner, uh, Sanders, Bernie Sanders apologized for the data breach by, uh, by a staffer during the debate. Is, is this issue now done? Can we move on to stuff that matters? Or does this stuff uh, actually matter, Jackie? Well, I don't think it does, and let me kind of take perspective on this for a moment. I I find it was interesting that 
the debates with this issue. I know they mm-hmm. felt the need to get it out of the way, but at the same time, it was so incredibly inside, inside, inside the baseball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not just inside baseball, but inside the ball itself. I mean, I, I think <laughs> that it had become such a big deal uh, in political circles uh, that they forgot America has no clue what they're talking about. And so when you're doing a debate like this, I mean, not only was Wasserman Schultz amiss in bringing this public in, uh, but to then have it on a debate stage, I mean, I, I just don't know how many people even understood what the heck was going on. Um, so Sanders was, I'm sorry, did you want to? Well, no, I was going to say, yeah, and to that end, I have a, a lot of questions about the way ABC ran this thing, to be frank. And and let me actually jump into, so we don't make the same mistake of, of focusing too much on that data breach, because they did fairly quickly move on from it. But what they moved on to for the entire first hour of the debate uh, Martha Raditz and David Muir spent at least, this is almost, well, I think at least half of the debate uh, on issues of foreign policy, specifically national security and terrorism in response to ISIS. Now, I'm, I'm sort of of two minds here, so I'm hoping, Jackie, you can help me out. The previous Democratic debate took place just hours after the Paris attacks. I know you were in Paris at that time. So it was certainly understandable mm-hmm. that the focus of that debate debate changed to foreign policy. Um, we've had the San Bernardino attack since, uh, but the entire first hour, isn't that playing into, uh, let me try to explain, isn't that playing Republican narrative, which I reject, that Islamic terrorism is the most important issue that currently faces? Is it the most important, or does it just become the most important when the both the media and the Republicans seem to focus almost exclusively on the issue of, you know, frightened people and frightening people. In other words, is the fear here a, a self-fulfilling process, prophecy that the more we talk about it, the more it feeds on itself and then ultimately serves the media and the GOP uh, and that Democrats end up taking the bait by joining this obsession? Well, I think it's tricky because it's human nature, and I think we are by human nature scared right now. I think that there is a little bit of that ginned up with over-media coverage of certain events, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, this is something bigger that we're having trouble dealing with. We're having trouble as a nation coping with the idea of this sort of terrorism coming back to our shores. So I think that if you're going to have a debate during the week where the Republicans are going to focus exclusively on national security and ISIS. I think that you do have to emphasize that Democratic debate only because traditionally there is this perception that Democrats are not as tough on national security issues as Republicans. So you need to dig into that, and especially with these two candidates who are well-versed and able to talk about it, I think it was important to get into some of the details. The problem with this, and I was going to going to mm-hmm. tap on a little bit to what we were talking in this was held, is that I said, you know, President Clinton, or President Clinton, excuse me, geez. <laughs> there's a, oh, now there's we a see who box. you're in the bag uh, for, Jackie Schechner. <laughs> and, uh, go ahead. <laughs> former Secretary of State Clinton, Senator Sanders, uh, O'Malley's a different story, but, um, you know, I think that they both had a lot to say on the issue. It was important for them uh, to, to to say that they could be strong on national security, and I think giving them the opportunity to prove that they are. Uh, Sanders won because he has a little bit of a softer image, and Clinton, sadly, because she's a woman. So I think that that was an important thing to get across. Now, they both referred to uh, the entire Democratic field, better choices 
than any of the Republican candidates. But frankly, I don't know that any Republicans were watching. Mm. So you can say that over and over. I don't know who you're saying it to. You're preaching to the choir. That kind of gets... Uh, There lies the problem of when the debate airs. And yeah, and that kind of gets to my point, that they all decided, okay, let's play on a Republican playing field, even though this is a Democratic debate. Let's go. I I understand Mm -hmm. speaking to it. But, you know, ultimately, I I may have figured out a a difference between the candidates. Uh, Hillary says uh, we should take out Syria's Assad and ISIS at the same time. Bernie says take out ISIS first and Assad later. And frankly, to his credit, Martin O'Malley asked, where in the Constitution is it our job to simply declare that we should be taking out a, a, a dictator at all by fiat? Uh, David Dayan, is there well, any... Well, Sanders emphasized yeah. that too, though. He talked about not being the world's policeman. I'm sorry, I just wanted to interject yeah. that because he did emphasize mm-hmm. it's not our role. It, well, no, you're right. He did. Fair enough. But, uh, David, is, is there enough... Is, is there any daylight, really, between these three candidates on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think you just pinpointed it. Um, we're, you know, the, the issue of... That's regime, pretty slim you know, pickings, though, to be frank. I don't think that's <laughs> I mean, uh, when you're talking about regime change, you're talking about the animating principle of going into Iraq. Uh, The the, the reasonably that was given was, you know, weapons of mass destruction, but it was really about taking out uh, a dictator that had ceased to become useful uh, during the Iran-Iraq War. Saddam Hussein was a little bit more useful to the interests of the United States. And uh, so so that, that kind of fell along those lines. And, of course, what did you see? In that vote to authorize uh, the Iraq War, Clinton voted for it. Sanders voted against it. So uh, these these are important issues, and that issue of uh, being the world's policeman, the issue of regime change, the issue of of, of going around the world and and figuring out who is and who is not uh, available for our interests, and whether or not we're going to act on that and and forcibly remove them is is very important. Um, so I, I, I think that is a bit daylight on this issue. I do want to refer to some. Jackie mentions that the previous Republican debate, which was just a few days before this debate, mm-hmm. was 100 percent on uh, national security, and uh, uh, which is something that Democrats would never be able to get away with. There is no way you could do an entire uh, single source topic. They were uh, uh, for two hours for on on the Democratic side. You, what you would see on the other side is that they don't care about X. Whatever you left out of that debate, uh, <laughs> that, that's what you would hear on the other side. They don't care about security. They don't care about the economy. Whatever it is, you're right. Uh, you're absolutely. So it's an interesting, more of a media contrast. Though. You're you're absolutely right. All right, I got to take a quick break here. We'll come back. We'll get into some of the clips. I got a whole bunch of them. Uh, they did move the conversation from terror to guns, which is uh, well, at least by both my opinion and the data, a gr- a far greater threat to Americans. Uh, we're going to talk about that. And yes, Donald Trump and uh, free college for uh, everyone and uh, single payer health care and all of that ahead with my guests, David Dayan and Jackie Schechner. Stand by a quick break and we will be back with much more broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs>
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Should corporate America love Hillary Clinton? Everybody should. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our special coverage of the Democratic debate that happened secretly over the weekend in New Hampshire between uh, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and uh, Martin O'Malley. My guests are uh, David Dayan and Jackie Schechner. Okay, they, as I said, they spent a lot of the uh, uh, the debate, the first hour at least, talking about uh, terrorism and why people should be afraid of all manner of things. And then they moved to uh, slightly over uh, towards the topic of guns. And uh, some Americans... Uh, claiming that some Americans think we need more guns rather than fewer guns to protect against terror. Uh, And they were asked, you know, would you take assault-type weapons away from Americans? Here was how Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton responded in part to that question. Guns in and of themselves, in my opinion, will not make Americans safer. Arming more people to do what I think is not the appropriate response to terrorism. I think what is... is creating much deeper, closer relations and, yes, coalitions within our own country. The first line of defense against radicalization is in the Muslim American community. I worry greatly that the rhetoric coming from the Republicans, particularly Donald Trump, is sending a message to Muslims here in the United States and literally around the world that there is a clash of civilizations, which then, I believe, fans the flames of radicalization. So guns have to be looked at as its own problem, but we also have to figure out how we're going to deal with the radicalization here in the United States. Uh, And I've got uh, Bernie's response. Actually, let's go ahead and play uh, a little bit of Bernie and and, uh, some of uh, O'Malley, and then we'll get uh, Jackie and David's uh, uh, thoughts on this. Here was uh, responded to this. I think we have got to bring together the vast majority of the people who do, in fact, believe in sensible gun safety regulations. For example, talking about polls, poll recently came out. All majority of the American people say we should strengthen the instant background check. We've got to eliminate the gun show loophole. We have got to see that weapons designed by the military to kill people are not in the hands of civilians. I think there is a consensus. I think it's a divided country on guns, but there is a broad consensus on sensible gun safety regulations that I, coming from a state that has virtually no gun control, will do my best to bring together. And we'll uh, play a little bit of Martin O'Malley on this in a moment. But uh, Jackie Schechner did, uh, well, first, did Hillary uh, bridge the concern between terrorism uh, and guns, which is something Democrats have been talking about now for years, trying to do something about. The American people seem to be with them, but the Republicans, frankly, don't seem to give a damn um, did, did, did she bridge that uh, gap between those two issues? 
Or is this something that Democrats can keep talking about, but nothing's going to happen? So uh, it make any sense to talk about it? Well, I guess she touched on an important distinction. I think they're two distinct issues. And I think that, yes, they seem to be intertwined right now because guns are being used in terrorist acts. But the gun issue in America is a separate issue than the terrorism issue. And I like what she did with her answer, touching on what's important in getting the Muslim American community involved in more of a a communal way. Um, But I I think the gun issue is separate. And I think there's a little bit of a problem when when mostly the Republican Party tries to smush the two together, because you can get people to be very pro-gun the more afraid you make them. And so that works to their advantage. But the gun control issue in our country, you're right, has been around a lot longer, and it it is much more, uh, it's a bigger issue and a much more dire issue right now. Uh, Sanders, a one, um, another aspect of this, if I can real quickly, is sure. that um, there is, it's not a black and white issue. There's a, there's a huge gray area there. And I think that a lot of times um, people who are uh, very pro-gun think that uh, those of us who tend to be more progressive want to take their guns away. I'm okay uh, with you're having a gun. I want that gun control. I want, I want greater gun control. I want greater background checks. I, I want the assault weapons off the streets. So I, I think that a lot of times when conservatives hear that, they either, A, don't believe it, because it's been so ingrained in them that everyone on the left wants to get rid of all guns. Um, and I think that we have to grab on to this smart consensus in order to move forward. It's an important thing to do. Um, the problem now is you have people like Donald Trump saying, if only people in Paris had guns, not so many people would have died, which is a ridiculous statement. But he, the two together, and those who, and those within the Republican policy, Republican Party rather, who follow in his footsteps, uh, all clamor onto that, and then it's harder to separate the two issues, which I think very much need to be separate. David Day and uh, Clinton has made much of Bernie Sanders' past support, uh, at least for you know people in Vermont, uh, who, who hunters and so forth who use guns. She's claiming that he's not tough enough on guns. Uh, is that something that rep- is, is Bernie actually vulnerable there, or is that is that something that represents a real difference uh, between the candidates, or is this just a place where Hillary is trying to make of a difference between herself and Bernie Sanders? Yeah, I think I think it's uh, being able to exploit something where, uh, in this case, Sanders takes an issue mm-hmm. that is more in line with uh, the constituents in his home state, and you see the same thing with Clinton and. And, and one of her home state interests, which is Wall Street. Yep. So uh, I think it's very similar, actually, in, in both ways, is that uh, it's, your, your, your stance is, is, is contoured by uh, who your constituents are and, in some cases, who your donors are. But, but does it make a difference um, to voters, David? Da- da- let me ask you that. Do, but does it make a difference to, to an actual difference to voters trying to choose between these two people? Or, or I, I should say three people. Or, or is it something that's used because, well, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter and therefore I'm fine with his position or I'm a, you know, uh, Sanders, so I don't like Hillary's position. I mean, is there is this really something that would help people choose between these two candidates? Well, you have to ask yourself if this person were in office and therefore not as constrained by parochial interests, mm-hmm. what is it that they would do? I mean, that's really what you have to look at. 
Uh, I don't think there's any question that Bernie Sanders, if uh, president of the United States, would sign legislation that would uh, either ban assault weapons or high-capacity magazines or, or, or close the gun show loophole mm-hmm. or uh, institute background checks, or, uh, regardless of, of his, his vote on, on, on one issue or another. And in fact, he's been moved in the course of the campaign to say all that. So, you know, that, that's, I think, what you have to assess if you really get that. One thing I would say about gun control more generally is that I think liberals have a preference intensity issue here. Uh, and, and Jackie kind of alluded to this, that uh, conservatives have a very black and white way of looking at this, and, and it's much more intensity around any semblance of gun control. Speaking of intensity, Martin O'Malley. Uh, Yes, thank you, Jackie. Uh, uh, Martin O'Malley wanted to get in on this conversation as he wanted to get on all of these conversations, as well he should. Uh, Here was was his comments about uh, about guns uh, from the Saturday night debate. ISIL videos, ISIL training videos are telling lone wolves the easiest way to buy a combat assault weapon in America is at a gun show, and it's because of the flip-flopping political approach of Washington that both of my two on this stage have represented there for the last 40 years. We need common sense. Uh, Let's calm down a little bit, Martin. Yeah, let's get, let's tell the the truth, Martin. uh, I am telling the truth. Let's maybe have some rules here, commentators. We will. Senator, he invoked your your record, sure and I'll let you respond. First thought, we can do all the great speeches we want, but you ain't going to succeed unless there is a consensus. Right. Do not explain to me, coming from a state where Democrat governors and Republican governors have supported virtually no gun control. Don't, don't, don't excuse me, excuse me, control. do not tell me that, that I have not shown courage in standing up to the gun people, in voting to ban assault weapons, voting for instant background checks, voting to end the gun show loophole, and now in a position to create a consensus in America on gun safety. Senator, thank you. I want to move on here. Secretary. Well, touched a Bernie nerve there, uh, Jackie Schechner. <laughs> oh, I would just say he was very much a puppy nipping at the heels during this debate. He started when the whole DNC debate conversation happened, and he tried to get in there with, like, hey, you know, there's none of this contentious stuff. There was nothing contentious. Like, mm-hmm. Bernie apologized, Clinton accepted, we're done. So he, he had prepared to be that rabble-rouser, and there was not a heck of a lot that warranted that. Like, the conversation, I thought, for the most part, was, was very um, high-level. It was very mature. Mm-hmm. It was uh, very gracious. And he just kept trying to jump in there in a way that would have been much better suited for the Republican debate than this Democratic debate. And he didn't come off, I thought, sounding very professional. Speaking of maturity, Donald Trump. Uh, now, I understand. <laughs> uh, it is understandable, I suppose. He is the front runner, obviously, at this point on the Republican side. It's it's uh, not surprising that there were questions about him. But even during the cutaways to commercial breaks, uh, ABC News Uh, was filling us in on what Trump and other Republicans were saying. Uh, Was that appropriate? I mean, I I thought it was uh, curious. I don't recall seeing any updates on what Democrats were talking about during GOP debates. Uh, Either of you guys want to add that uh, question? I don't remember any of the GOP debates. 
Yeah, I don't think any of the GOP debates had like that commentary. It was like a sports cast. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember any of the other debates having that. They took commercials, but I don't, I don't remember any like pregame or you know halftime commentary mm-hmm. like ABC. All right. When when you have, uh, yeah, it was very strange. But when you have what's going on with Donald Trump, I guess that has to come up. Bernie Sanders tried to uh, take the opportunity of Donald Trump and turn it uh, back to discussion about what he wanted to talk about. Uh, but he also took some some direct shots at uh, at Donald Trump. What you have now is a very dangerous moment in American history. Secretary is right. Our people are fearful. They are anxious. And they're looking around them, and they're looking at Washington, and they're saying, the rich are getting much richer, I'm getting poorer. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do for my kids? And somebody like a Trump comes along and says, I know the answers. The answer is that all of the Mexicans, they're criminals and rapists. we got to hate the Mexicans. Those are your enemies. We hate all the Muslims because all of the Muslims are terrorists. we got to hate the Muslims. Meanwhile, the rich get richer. So what I say to those people... Understand, he thinks low wages are a good idea. I believe we stand together to address the real issues facing this country, not allow them to divide us by race or where we come from. Let's create an America that works for all of us, not the handful on top. Senator, thank you. So, David Day and a lot of people uh, have been turning to Donald Trump because they are frightened, because he speaks to, uh, he makes them feel better, whether what he's saying or not is actually accurate, whether or not what he's saying is actually uh, puts the nation more at risk. Uh, Did Bernie Sanders show himself in that moment or any other uh, as, you know, having the capacity, the, the commander in chief capacity to you know, to be the father, uh, the parent, if you will, uh, to, to the country, to 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 comfort the country. Did did you get any sense of that from that response, or or any other that uh, Bernie is able to fill that slot that for some reason Americans turn to uh, the presidents for? I don't know. I don't take much out of that role as an as an actual role of the president, rather than I don't either. Sort of but a apparently, theatrical role. Yeah. Uh, that the media in particular, uh, uh, you know, kind of is a box that they try to make a president fill. Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that you need that, uh, you know, in a president. But uh, we, we don't know because it's sort of forced on by these, these sort of narratives that get layered onto the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I think that answer that he's uh, been talking about aligns uh, Sanders' answer about, about Trump aligns with sort of the rest of his candidacy that, uh, and, and, and a narrative that animates, uh, I think, a lot of his thinking and, and the thinking of, of people on the political left that, uh, the, the, you know, it's kind of the theory of what's the matter with Kansas, right? The, uh, the Thomas Frank book. Right. That people vote against their own economic interests because, uh, the, the the lower and working classes are pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, their the differences are used and exploited, and the social issues are, are brought to the fore in order to keep people away from what's really happening uh, to them economically. And uh, I think this was just sort of an extension. It's really kind of what President Obama, then candidate Obama, was saying when he was talking about people clinging to guns or mm-hmm. religion 
back in, which we got a lot of uh, flack for back yeah. in the 2008 campaign. So uh, th- this is a through line, I think, uh, in Democratic commentary uh, when they try to explain this, these kinds of things. Uh, one thing I wish is that they would maybe, instead of saying, well, this is all intended to distract us and we should get to what matters, I mean, clearly people are anxious about these particular issues, and it would be nice to see a Democratic campaign rather than saying, well, this is all a distraction, let's move on to uh, directly target these particular issues and why scapegoating uh, Muslims or, or, or Mexicans on, their, on its own terms, even on its own economic mm-hmm. terms, is, is, is the wrong way to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, immigration has helped this country immensely uh, from an economic standpoint. Maybe we could talk about that. Uh, rather than sort of seeding the field by saying, well, this is just meant to distract them. Well, let's... Uh, Actually, I'm glad that David brought that up, yeah. because I, if I remember correctly, that question was specifically about racial profiling and whether or not it was ever okay to racially profile. Mm-hmm. And then he right. he did that weird that weird pivot into uh, the domestic he wanted to emphasize. And I remember... I actually think I tweeted it out at the time that I get what he was trying to do with the pivot, but it wasn't the appropriate time to do it. And, and David's right. Like, I wish that he had addressed that issue specifically as opposed to playing that this is a distraction game and trying to get it back towards what he wanted to talk about. As far as Bernie Sanders being strong enough to be the commander-in-chief, I thought that his personality Saturday night came through in the strongest I've seen it yet in terms of being able to hold that position uh, in a really, I thought, commanding way. Um, but you're absolutely right in that we have to make sure that, that the candidates address those questions on their merit, uh, and we don't always push away from it because we have that stigma of not being as strong on national security issues. I think it's super important that we don't say it's a distraction, that we say it's an important issue, we address it, and then we expand. All right, let's uh, pivot to a quick break here, and we will come back with uh, some of the economic issues that David Dayan was uh, referencing there, uh, education, health care, taxes, uh, and much more on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman with David Dayan and Jackie Schechner and Desi Doyen somewhere back in there. <laughs> uh, quick break, and we're back. Uh, stay tuned. I'm Brad Friedman. We'll be back. <laughs> If you will join me in this campaign, we will make that a mission. Thank you, good night, and may the force be with you. Welcome back. The Bradcast Awakens. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, covering the uh, secret Democratic debate over the weekend. While Star Wars was playing and the country wasn't paying attention, uh, my guests today, Jackie Schechner and David Dayan, uh, let's uh, turn to finally now to some of these domestic and uh, economic issues and so forth. Um, the um, uh, Sander, this is something that I've uh, talked to a lot of people about. They hear they love the idea. Bernie Sanders talking about free college tuition for everyone, at least to uh, public colleges and universities. But people are very dubious about it, that it's impossible to pay for. Uh, this is uh, clip number uh, 13 
let's see. Well, let's see. Uh, Ber- here's Bernie talking a little bit about it on the debate on Saturday. You've all said you would raise the minimum wage, but the Senator Sanders, how as president would you get them to raise right away? First of all, we recognize that we have a rigged economy. First statement we make is we tell the billionaire class they cannot have it all. For a start, they're going to start paying their fair share of taxes. Second of all, we do is you raise the minimum wage to a living wage, 15 bucks an hour over the next several years. Next thing we do, pay equity for women workers. We rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. It is imperative that we have the best educated workforce in the world. That is why I'm going to have a tax on Wall Street speculation to make certain that public colleges and universities in America are tuition free. Senator Sanders, thank you. Uh, David Dayen, David, you're a, a financial journalist. Have you run the numbers on Sanders' proposal for free tuition to public uh, college and tuition as, as paid for by a Wall Street transaction tax? Does that work? Do the numbers really work? Because I think a lot of people like the idea of free tuition, but uh, they think, oh, it's, it would be impossible. We couldn't actually pay for it without breaking the bank. Of course the numbers work. In fact, if you just took the pot of money that is used currently to help people get into college. In other words, you take the Pell Grants, Mm -hmm. you take the tax preference on on so-called 529 funds, uh, which are used uh, to build up uh, resources tax-free so people can go to college. You just take that pot of money that we already spend on uh, making college affordable and uh, that money alone is enough to pay for the tuition for every single currently matriculating student at a public college or university. We can, of course, we can do this. We, we, we are already devoting the resources available to do it. If you do it in a streamlined way where you actually put the resources towards public college and universities and making that tuition free, you can get it done. And, and certainly, uh, a financial transaction tax, if you want to use that, I mean, all this money is fungible, right? Uh, the idea that you use something to pay for something else is sort of an accounting fiction. Uh, it, you know, it all goes into the federal general fund of the Treasury, and then, and then that money goes out to pay for these programs. But uh, certainly a financial transaction tax, even a very small one, given the volume of trades that are made every day on the New York Stock Exchange and the other exchanges, would yield more than enough money to uh, allow for that tuition. So if if his plan is legitimate and can be paid for and sounds fantastic to a lot of people, uh, Jackie Schechner, why why are so many uh, so many among the American public either dubious of the plan or just not that crazy about it? Because boy, it sure seems fantastic to me. Because they know how Washington works. I mean, uh, let's be honest, like, we have a lot of really great ideas, and then it gets into Congress's hands and nothing happens. So I think that people are dubious because, you know, you could say that the money's there and we mm-hmm. just need to make some changes to make it viable, but I think we, for too long, seeing that it all gets mucked up as the process goes along and you don't get what you want. So I, I think that's where it comes from. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear that the money's there. I, that wasn't something that I knew. Um, but, you know, having been through the health care fight myself, like, I know what your intentions are when you start, and then I see what you get uh, on the tail end. I've seen how the sausage is made, and frankly, mm-hmm. it, 
it's hard to order sausage again. So I, I think that that's the problem is, is you know what happens when the president's best laid plans uh, get put into the hands of, of Congress and get all twisted around and come out looking nothing like what they went in with well, the intention I mean, of being. Jackie, that, that's actually a larger question, and it's really one of the main questions that should be in any of these debates, uh, at least on the Democratic side, knowing what we know, which is that the House of Representatives is very gerrymandered. It is exceedingly likely that you will have a House majority of Republicans, even if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or whoever else on the Democratic side is elected president. And, and that is, you know, you make all these plans, and they're nice to know your sort of pers- principles and priorities, but how are you going to deal with divided government, which is what is very likely to happen and what you will have to encounter. Um, there, there could have been a lot of questions about the fact that, you know, we just had a lot of congressional uh, activity, whether it was the, the education bill, the update of No Child Left Behind that happened just a couple weeks ago, the uh, new highway bill, a five-year bill uh, on surface transportation, the omnibus spending bill, uh, these this giant tax extender bill, which was uh, $680 billion unpaid for of mostly corporate tax breaks that was passed last week. Uh, There are all kinds of things you could talk about. What is the president's role when Congress wants to push forward priorities like this? But none of that Mm -hmm. gets answered. And and then we end up having these sort of uh, airy debates about what's the best way to crack down on Wall Street, rather than looking at the reality of the situation, which is uh, Republicans are going to want to roll back this, this, and this. What is your red line? You know, I mean, that's what needs to be talked about if you want to be realistic about the role of the president in an era of divided government. Uh, Let me get to, since we have just a few minutes left, and I want to get to some reality here on this particular point concerning health care. Martha Raddatz asked... well, here's her exact uh, uh, question. Secretary Clinton, the Department of Health and Human Services says more than 17 million Americans who are not insured now have health coverage because of Obamacare. Uh, but for Americans who already had health insurance, the cost has gone up 27 percent in the last five years, while deductibles are up 67 percent. Health costs are rising faster than many Americans can manage. Uh, what are you going to do about it? Here's what here's how Clinton responded. What's broken in Obamacare that needs to be fixed right now, and what would you do to fix it? Well, I would certainly build on the successes of the Affordable Care Act. Those are all really positive developments. But out-of-pocket costs have gone up too much, and prescription drug costs have gone through the roof. And so what I have proposed, number one, is a $5,000 tax credit to help people who have very large out-of-pocket costs be able to afford those. Number two, I want Medicare to be able to negotiate for lower drug prices. And I want us to be absolutely clear about making sure the insurance companies in the private employer policy arena, as well as in uh, the affordable care exchanges, are properly regulated so that we are not being gamed. We don't have enough competition and we don't have enough oversight of what the insurance companies are charging everybody right now. And in the meantime, uh, it turns out that Martha Raddatz's question uh, was completely based on a false premise in that, yes, uh, health care costs have gone up over the past five years, but Obamacare has only been in place 
for the last two years. And during those years, uh, health care costs have risen at a slower rate than they have for decades. Uh, Jackie, why didn't uh, Hillary Clinton uh, speak to that? Uh, and, and am I right on these numbers, as you, as you know them, way better than I do, having covered health care for so many years? Well, I do know that the rate of growth has slowed. Um, and she's, but she's not wrong in that there is a perception that health care costs are still uh, untenable. And, and that's very much true all the way across the board. I think Clinton answered this question perfectly. Not only did she call it the Affordable Care Act, which I love because I hate the word Obamacare, um, <laughs> but she also went into the idea that it's done a lot of really good things. We opened the door, we laid a foundation, and what was specific to me and my knowledge is that the things that she pointed out are the things that the Obama administration allowed Congress to get away with during the fight. You know, Had we had a public option, we would have had more costs in place. We would have been able to help keep down costs, keep the insurance, company on, insurance companies more honest, to inject more competition. Uh, he gave away the opportunity for uh, any sort of drug negotiation. There were things that fell by the wayside during the fight. She was bringing those back into the mix again. Um, so I think that she was spot on in what she was targeting. I don't know, uh, again, in a divided government, how much of that stuff would be able to get through, but I like the idea that she's well aware of where the problems lie, and I think it's important that we do, in fact, hold strong on the Affordable Care Act and then build on top of it. Well, Bernie she... Sanders, you might remember. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Finish your thought there, because I want to play Bernie. I was going to say Sanders went into single payer, mm-hmm. which, as somebody who has known more and more about our health care system, I, I'm now an advocate of that. But getting to that politically is virtually impossible, especially in this environment. It was before. It still will be for quite some time. I like that Bernie is even farther to the left of her, but her answer was more realistic. Well, here's Bernie uh, speaking to that, and then I'll ask David Dayan if if the math is correct here. And can we afford single-payer, too? Clip number 17. Ending the obscenity of this pre-existing situation is a step forward. 17 million more people have health care. It is a step forward. But... Not only are deductibles rising, 29 million Americans still have no health insurance. Here is the bottom line. Why is it that the United States of America today is the only major country on earth that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right? Why is it that we spend more than what they say in, what they pay in France? Countries that guarantee health care to all of their people and in many cases have better health care outcomes. Bottom line, this ties into campaign finance reform. The insurance companies, the drug companies are bribing the United States Congress. We need to pass a Medicare for all single payer system. Senator Sanders, you didn't really tell us specifically how much people will be expected to pay. But they will not be paying, Martha, any private insurance. So it's unfair to say in total. But you can't tell us a specific I can tell you that adding up the fact that you are not paying any private insurance, businesses are not paying any private insurance, the average middle class family will be saving thousands of dollars a year. Okay, turning to David Day, and we've got just about uh, 30 seconds or a minute here at, 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 in full. Uh, David, yeah. does the math work here for single payer as well, or does that break the bank? No, Sanders is absolutely right. National health expenditures is really the number you want to look at, um, even if it's $18 trillion number that the Wall Street Journal put forward. Uh, we currently spend something like $42 trillion over that period. The one thing that we know single-payer does 
because it consolidates all the different payers in the system and incre- increases bargaining power, is it lowers costs. That, that's the one thing we know it does. So uh, employers, as Sanders said, would have a savings. Individuals would have a savings. Uh, Jackie Schechner, uh, did the debate in New Hampshire over the weekend uh, move the dial in any particular direction? Has it moved the needle, or are we still at the same place that we were essentially going in with a very tight race in New Hampshire and Hillary Clinton with a big lead nationally? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it moved the needle, uh, but I do think that it created an even starker contrast between the two parties. And I said, no matter who I vote for, I'm happy to have two strong choices. Dave, and that makes me very proud. David Day, and your closing thought? I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I think it's hard that a Saturday night debate that nobody watches is going to move the needle. <laughs> um, but at the same time, uh, it, it certainly provides a contrast to what we're seeing on, on the Republican side. My thanks to both of you, uh, David Dayan of Salon, Fiscal Times, and everywhere else. Jackie Schechner of JackieSchechner.com. Find them both and follow them both on, on the Twitters. You can find David at D Dayan. And uh, Jackie, you are at Jackie Schechner on the Twitters, correct? Correct. Very good. All right. Uh, We'll be back with you all. Same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com or on over at iTunes. And you can follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at The Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.